Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll preview the new Andy Warhol exhibit that just opened in Glen Ellen. Over 200 original Warhol pieces are on display at the Cleve Carney Museum of Art. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about Theater Wit's latest, The Whistleblower. Later in the show, I'll talk to some of the people involved with bringing the Violins of Hope program to Illinois this summer. And I'll catch up with the choreographer of a world premiere dance concert that was inspired by a South Side tradition called Jazz in the Alley. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. Over 35 years after his death, Andy Warhol's legacy is as relevant as ever. Some of his works are among the most recognizable pieces of art in the world, and his thoughts on fame and celebrity seem especially prescient. Yet Warhol's talent and depth of thought are sometimes overshadowed by his carefully crafted public persona. Do you take more than one picture or only one? No, I take, I take at least 200 or maybe more. You never try to make it look like life, do you? Uh, gee, I don't know how. That was from a BBC interview with Warhol in 1981. A new exhibit at College of DuPage's Cleve Carney Museum of Art is aiming to offer a more comprehensive look at the artist who once said, in the future, everybody will be world famous for 15 minutes. A lot of what he did and was focused on is, was very predictive of our contemporary society. Like, he always walked around later in life with his camera, constantly taking pictures, documenting his life like we all do now. This is Cleve Carney Museum of Art curator Justin Witte. He was very aware of the power of fame and cultural icons, uh, something that we're even more involved with now. Um, His idea of what constituted artwork was more in line with contemporary ideas now. So so in short answer, yeah, he's absolutely one of the most well-known American artists from the last century. That's what comes to mind for me, just his his ideas about celebrity and now uh, the way us as a society kind of use different modes of technology. But uh, I think he's got that quote about everyone's 15 minutes of fame. And right. so kind of will be famous for 15 minutes. And it's funny because I think that he's someone who would love like what we're doing now. He would love how portable technology is. I think social media would kind of be where he lived at this moment. And in a way, he was almost he was almost living kind of a social media star life ahead of the technology. He had to use the technology of the time because so much of what he was doing was reflecting, right? He was reflecting American culture in terms of its uh, obsession with fame, of wealth, of success, and the way he uh, produced his items through kind of mechanical means of production, the way he positioned himself. So he was really reflecting the culture at large just the same way that social media reflects our culture today. I caught up with Witty this week as he and his team were making some final preparations days before the Warhol exhibition opened to the public on Saturday, June 3rd. What was your relationship to Warhol's work coming into this project? Were you a fan? I would say before I started working at the college, I had a 
similar view to a lot of people about Warhol, like, oh yeah, Warhol, he's there. He's in the landscape of art history and you kind of like see his work and you can recognize it. And maybe because it was so present, you, I didn't always go deeper beyond that. Um, I think since, you know, being a steward of the collection of the college, I've learned a lot more about him, seeing the work up close, also researching and learning about the photographs. And that helped to kind of deepen my understanding of who he was. And then in the process of the show, really researching his life, I think he's a much more complex figure than I or a lot of people initially think of him as uh, because of the way he intentionally crafted his own persona, his life, to uh, not give away too much because he wanted everyone to kind of see what they wanted. Now, you know, posthumously, people are able to look at different aspects of his life that maybe weren't as accessible before. And it actually, I think it adds more texture and uh, relatability to him as an artist. And it, it really benefits the work, I think. This Warhol exhibit is another feather in the cap of the Cleve Carney Museum of Art. Two years ago, the Glen Ellen-based museum presented a Frida Kahlo exhibition. Mackinac Arts Center director Diana Martinez has led both projects. She says the origins of the Warhol exhibit go back to a relationship that was developed while working on the Kahlo project. Bank of America was our sponsor for Frida, and the relationship that we've developed with them over the several years that we worked on Frida, we found out they have an incredible art collection, and they have a magnificent collection of Andy Warhols. We talked to them and Carrie Miles, who is in charge of their collection, uh, said they have a program where they can loan that art to us. And so we thought, well, what a great follow-up to Frida Mm -hmm. is that we'll have a huge summer exhibition in the summer of 2023 and transform the Art Center once again. Now it will be a big, huge celebration of Andy Warhol and pop art. Once the opportunity presented itself, Martinez and Witte embarked on a comprehensive research process to figure out what a Warhol exhibition would look like at the Mackinac Arts Center. The first step is always research, because if you understand the artist and where they're from and the time period they worked, it really spurs ideas. And I think all the research that we did, respectively, you know, we went to Justin Witte, our curator, and I, we went to the Warhol Museum, and that spurs some ideas. And then we went to his hometown. For me, that spurred ideas. And I think being at the museum and seeing so much art about animals, I realized he loved animals. And I'm like, that'd be great for the kids' area. And then going to New York and doing research there and a walking tour and reading books and watching documentaries and things, each thing spurs a thought. Given the scope and prolific nature of Warhol's career, Woody says a lot of time was spent planning and researching. If we have this arc, we want to talk about his early years through his work as a commercial artist, through the factory years into late work. What points on that path do we want to highlight? Like what shows, what artworks? Once that decision made, there's research about the stories and facts surrounding those, getting rights to images to present them, and at the same time designing the physical designing, like architectural designing of the spaces, like how are people gonna move through the space? How can it best highlight the work? How can it, how can we have enough room to hang all the work? So like in the museum, we had to build a lot of walls to be able to hang all the prints from Bank of America. As that evolves, then it's just a constant refining and tightening of all those elements. Do you believe in feelings and emotions? Well, no, I don't, but uh, I have them. I wish I I didn't. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. 
You're listening to the arts section. I'm talking with curator Justin Witte and Mackinac Arts Center director Diana Martinez, two of the people behind the new Andy Warhol exhibition that just opened at College of DuPage's Cleve Carney Museum of Art. The exhibition features over 200 original Warhol works. 94 of them are on loan from a Bank of America collection. One of the earliest collections uh, is from 1969, which is a series of his soup cans, which is a subject matter he returned to at different points in his career. And then it, it follows with bodies of work all the way through uh, the 80s. I'd say their collection's a little heavier towards that latter end of his career, but there are examples like uh, there's a wonderful Maryland print, his famous flowers prints, and also one of his prints from the uh, Birmingham Race Riot series. In addition to the Bank of America works, College of DuPage has its own collection of Warhol pieces. For our listeners, I think a little known uh, tidbit is that the College of DuPage has some Andy Warhol pieces. Yeah, we actually have seven prints, six of them from gifted from the Andy Warhol Foundation, one gifted from um, uh, Dr. Helga and Dolores Frank, who are um, uh, community members uh, who were from Oak Brook. They donated one of the prints in our collection. And then 157 photos that were gifted to the school through the Andy Warhol Photographic Legacy Project. So in 2008, uh, then curator Barbara Wisen applied for this program that the uh, photographic that the Warhol, Andy Warhol Foundation was doing as a way to share their collection of his Polaroids and photos with smaller art centers and museums as a way to both highlight the work but also highlight those spaces. So through her work, she was able to establish getting that collection. And then since I've started, it's been part of my job maintaining and presenting that the work from that collection. It's really the gem at the center of the show. I think one of the most interesting aspects is that presentation of the photos because they show Andy's process through the Polaroids. You can see him trying different compositions and portraits. But there's also a lot of black and white photos from his everyday life. And you get a sense of um, Andy Warhol, the person, you know, behind the kind of celebrity, the big name artist, snapshots from his everyday. And I think anytime you're able to get that human connection with an artist, it really opens up all of their work because they're no longer this kind of monolithic force, but very much someone that you can relate to and understand more of the personal side to what they do. When visitors enter the Mackinac Arts Center, there will be a number of things to see. They can head right toward the Cleve Carney Museum of Art gallery space to check out the original Warhol works, or they can make their way through a biographical exhibit that traces the major moments of Warhol's life and career. Visitors will also be able to engage with a number of other offerings, including a Studio 54 installation. We took our Playhouse Theater, and it has 10 costume recreations by our in-house costume designer, Kim Morris, who recreated some of the more um, iconic people who visited Studio 54, from Jacqueline Kennedy to Cher to Elton John to John Travolta, um, Liza Minnelli, and of course Warhol. Uh And you can see them, their their costume recreations, and they're in music and a video of, of video clips of what it was like in Studio 54. The Arts Center's outdoor pavilion has been transformed into a little piece of Central Park, and there's a Warhol-themed kids' area. 
The Mac Image Arts Center has also scheduled a number of talks, lectures, and other programming to complement the exhibit. We have really fabulous guests that are coming. If you buy a ticket to the exhibit, you're welcome to come to any of the lectures throughout. And on several Thursday evenings, we have lectures like Eric Shiner, who was the director of the Warhol for many, many years, Jessica Beck, who is a curator at the Warhol. We have Thomas Kidrowski, who is um, a man who wrote Andy Warhol's Walking Tour of New York, and he's a really fabulous person with fun stories. Mm -hmm. And Joseph Freeman was Andy's assistant when he was, uh, he was really like an intern in high school. Okay. And he interviewed for a Andy for the school newspaper. And Andy really thought he was pretty, you know, sweet that he was doing this. And he said, well, you want a job? And the kid was like, well, yeah. <laughs> and so he gave him a job being his assistant and making sure he got to work, which afforded him to go to Andy's house every day and see, you know, get him out the door and get him, drive him to work or whatever he had to do. But he really got to see a very intimate side of Andy with his mother living with him, the cats in the house. He shares that Andy would often stop at church on his way to work. And he worked at the factory, right, where all those crazy stories are. So he offers a lot of firsthand personal insight, and he'll be here on Andy's birthday on August 6th. The Frida Kahlo exhibit in 2021 was a success by all accounts. No doubt there are high expectations for this Warhol exhibit. Martinez is optimistic, but also acknowledges it's hard to predict how the community will respond. I think that it's a different time than when we did Frida. When we did Frida, there, there's nothing else going on. We're just coming out of the pandemic. So now there's a lot of distraction and, you know, it, the sales are different. People buy last minute, so it's hard to tell where we're really at. But the one thing I'm pretty confident about is from the few people who've come through, um, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that the word of mouth will be quite positive and that that will be a real trigger. Frida, Andy Warhol, what's next? Well, you know, we, we've had a meeting with curators in Italy that flew out to see how we do a show that came out last week to kind of preview what we we're up to. And they were very, very positive and hoping that we could work together and bring in some really big names from Europe. So that's what we're looking at next. Right now, though, it's all Warhol all the time over at the Cleve Carney Museum of Art. Woody says he's hoping visitors take away a deeper understanding of one of the world's most popular artists. Leave with more of an open mind to some deeper content behind his work, and hopefully that that would relate to how they then look at different artists or different aspects of our society, not always assuming that, oh, just by presenting a soup can that's kind of like poppy or whatever, but what are some of the reasons for it? You know what I mean? Like, what does it mean when you're presenting the consumer can of soup that everyone consumes at the same level, and a year later presenting Marilyn Monroe as a celebrity, and then presenting images of car crashes or an electric chair? In a way, it's this leveling, right, saying these are all items being produced by our society and kind of presented at the same level, right? Celebrity is its own product on the same level as a can of soup. Tragedy and sensationalism on the same level as a can of soup. And they're presented and consumed by us all at the same level. And that becomes a much more nuanced and at times critical, but also honest reflection of us culturally. And that's intentional, right? So I would always want people to leave any show we work on with this idea of like, well, maybe things deserve that deeper look. 
That was Justin Witte. He's the curator of the new Warhol exhibition at the Cleve Carney Museum of Art. Earlier, we heard from Diana Martinez, the executive director of the Mackinage Arts Center at College of DuPage. The Warhol exhibit opened this past Friday and will remain on display through September 10th. You can find more information at theccma.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. Theater Witt's relationship with Tony Award-winning playwright Itamar Moses continues with the Midwest premiere of his play The Whistleblower. Listeners might know Moses from his work on the immensely successful musical The Band's Visit. He's also written several other highly regarded plays. His latest work, The Whistleblower, premiered in 2019 and is now being presented by Theater Wit. Directed by the company's artistic director, Jeremy Wexler, the play follows L.A.-based screenwriter Eli as he has a revelation that spurs him to quit an upcoming job and embark on some sort of truth-telling mission, though the people in his orbit may not be super receptive to this new endeavor. Let's hear what the critics have to say, Jonathan. Uh, familiar premise here, familiar archetype. It is indeed, uh, at least since Shakespeare's time in of Athens, <laughs> and probably longer. Playwrights <laughs> have made have made merry with misanthropes. You know, people so brutally honest, even with their nearest and dearest, that they sow anger and distress wherever they go, until invariably they are caught in their own hypocrisies. Uh, the whistleblower riffs on that familiar trope, but I don't think it adds anything new to it, despite its contemporary set- setting. Uh, as you noted, Gary, author Itamar Moses is a Tony Award winner. He's widely produced, much honored American playwright, but I just don't think this is his strongest work. Carrie, you know, I ended up landing on liking it, but it took me a while to get there. I will say that I did think it was kind of interesting. And I know that they could not have possibly planned this, that this play is opening a theater with in the midst of the WGA strike. I don't know that the character of Eli will make anyone feel particularly sympathetic to the, to the life of a screenwriter. <laughs> I hope he's not emblematic of the type. But I agree with you, Jonathan, yes. This is kind of a familiar trope. The, the character I landed on was Gregors from Ibsen's Wild Duck, who kind of upends oh. the life of everyone around him because he insists that they face the truth about themselves. Um, so it's a little meta, it's a little precious. But what I did find as, as, as Eli does this journey, and it's not so much about Eli, who is not particularly likable. And I think going into this, you know, if you're looking for him as kind of even as a as a sort of anti-hero or adorable in any way in that kind of Rob Gordon high fidelity shiftless you know aspect you're not going to get that he he's rather you know he's rather entitled he takes this you know he pitches this show with his uh longtime partner Dan to producer Richard who is played for, for fans of the wire uh, this is played by the, the great character actor Michael Kostroff, who uh, played the slimy defense attorney in the wire Maury Levy fun to see him on stage And with that, let's pause for a moment and listen to a clip from The Whistleblower. This is the scene that Carrie was just talking about. Eli and his agent are pitching Richard, the producer, on this new show idea. It's called The Whistleblower. 
Great. Leo is a TV writer who's been struggling for a while to finally create and run his own show. <laughs> and he keeps trying, writing things that each time he thinks will sell, get on the air, but nothing ever does. It's starting to sound familiar. Right? Wait, though. Yeah. And at first he can't figure out what's wrong. It feels like this stuff should work. A doctor who can heal others but can't heal himself, figuratively speaking. Yeah. A lawyer whose tireless pursuit of justice in court prevents him from doing justice to the people in his life. A guy who hunts monsters, but is he the real monster, etc. Mm. But the pitches just die again and again. And when he, Leo that is, suddenly realizes what the problem is. What's the problem? That what he's writing is bull. Hmm. He keeps writing about these men who use their supposedly important work to avoid facing themselves, but it occurs to him that he's never actually done that. Looked at himself, not really. So how can he write anything that leads to a character having to do it? He has to do it himself first. And so he does. He begins to confront all the unexamined truths underlying every relationship in his life, decision he's made, which ultimately takes him on a journey out of his current existence and into something else. Something unknown, because painful as that is, it turns out to be the only way to free himself, and maybe others too along the way, to actually live authentically. He becomes the whistleblower. That was a scene from Theater Wit's new production, The Whistleblower. We heard Ben Fagus as Eli, William Anthony Sebastian Rose as Dan, and Michael Kostroff as Richard, the producer character. Carrie? Richard goes for it, and then right away, Eli pulls the plug out. And also, you know, of, of the project, he says, no, 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 uh, this is not, I'm going to live this, I'm not going to write this. And he goes off on this journey to the Bay Area, where he's from originally, to confront his parents, and his sister, and, uh, and, his, and friends of his who are married. And he dumps his girlfriend, and he is trying to reconnect with a former girlfriend who he did dirty, you know, some 13 years earlier. But, you know, as I'm saying this, I wonder if part of what I like about this is the production more than the play, because I think it is so superbly cast. I did mention Michael Kostroff, and the person who I think really anchors it is the great Chicago actor Ray Gray, who plays three roles. Uh, the assistant to Eli's friend Dan, his sister Rebecca, who is a mess-dealing, you know, kind of ne'er-do-well, and his former girlfriend Eleanor, who has been left in, in some ways scarred and shaken uh, by what happened between them so many years earlier. But what's interesting is that she, she defines all of these characters so differently, and all of them come back with, to Eli with basically some version of nobody asked you. None of us asked you to try to fix our lives. None of us asked you to come back here. This idea that you have some special knowledge, I think, is a little bit of a slight dig at the idea of the artist as soothsayer, as truth-teller. And for me, I think what also pushed you more into the liking camp was by the end of it i felt like it was a really good excoriation of the notion of the hero's journey uh, you know that's such a well-trod narrative but i think in its own subtle way most moses play is telling us that's not how things work you know this is not how the world works there's not one person who goes and saves us and tells us the truth about ourselves it would be nice to think that and maybe that is something we've gotten from narratives you know over time but it's it's not a true narrative. Well, you know, Eli, as you I already noted, is an anti-hero. This is not a hero's journey because in a hero's journey, the journey, the, the the hero learns as he goes right. along, picks up necessary information uh, that is going to result in his ultimate triumph. And there's none of that here. Right. Uh, one reason the whistleblower is small and introspective. 
uh, it's anti-hero, I'm going to stick with that term, Eli is a modestly successful TV film writer, uh, and he doesn't take on the world. He only takes on a small circle of his closest friends and relatives, all of whom, frankly, are rather average people. And so is Eli. Itamar Moses doesn't make him special enough for us really to care about him, which is a serious mistake in dramatic writing. Rather than sympathize, I just want to shake Eli and say, grow up. But, you know, I will grant one crumb here. Maybe, just maybe, Moses really is trying to write about someone having a nervous breakdown or wrestling with suicidal thoughts. There are hints of both of these things, but frankly, not enough actual focus on these to swing the play in that direction. I guess um, what I was thinking of is more about, and Moses has also written, I think he wrote for Boardwalk Empire. He's done, as so many playwrights have, you know, writing in Hollywood as well. You know, and I think that what, although it's not directly stated, I feel like one of the messages is a lot of the stuff we see on our screens comes from people like Eli. It comes from small people who think they're big people. It comes from people with very limited experience who think that they are qualified to tell the rest of us about what the state of the world is. So I think that's what I carried away. Although, definitely, Jonathan, I can, I can appreciate and understand why someone else would come away with something different. As I said, it took me a little while to kind of get into the groove, and I don't think that's the fault of the production. I think that that's just the way Moses has written Eli. We, he's, we want to keep him at arm's length because he's... He's just an annoying man-child in many ways. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I <laughs> but the world is filled with annoying men-children and women-children, too. So Another thing that I will call attention to is that with the whistleblower is billed as a comedy. And in the classical sense, it is. People behave foolishly, not just Eli, mm -hmm. and no one dies at the end. You know, that's classical comedy. But if you go expecting jokes and ha-ha comedy, you're going to be disappointed. Like Time of Athens, which I mentioned early mm -hmm. on, this is a serious comedy. Um, I will say that it is a handsome production uh, with a clean, versatile scenic design by Brian Redfern, which swiftly delineates the play's various California locations. And I enjoyed the fact that the several scenery pieces are unified by a soothing overall abstract colorscape, suggesting to me the sweep of the California coastline. Right. And also um, kind of silvery, I, like silver screens in a way, yeah. I think, too. I wanted also to say that under director Jeremy Wexler, the actors are capable and swift to establish their characters, and they're all amiable. But there's not a knockout performance, because Moses hasn't written a knockout role for anyone. Not even for I, Eli, played I, by Ben Fagus. And who appears in every scene of the ninety-minute show? I, it just I will isn't say that I thought the, the character. I'm going to disagree with you on that one. I think the scene between Eleanor, played by Ray Gray, the former girlfriend of thirteen years past, and Eli is an absolute highlight. I think so many of the things that happened in that were so nuanced and and bitterly funny at points. And I found myself really leaning in to that scene. You know, the other thing I think that this play has raised for me is this idea of like, what is you know, we talk about well, what's real, but it's not about truthiness. It's about trying to figure out that what's real and what's authentic. I think the, the mistake the Eli's of the world make and perhaps impose upon the rest of us is that, you know, I want, I want you to be your authentic self. It's like, well, authenticity, is, as Richard, Michael Kostrup's character, reminds us later on, it's like we're all, we're all trying on different roles and different personas throughout our lives. Does that make us not real? No, we're real. We're not fictional characters. But there is, you know, if, if you want to say there's a core authenticity to anyone, 
that's a difficult argument to make because we are all composed of our childhood experiences, the people we've met, the ideas we've been exposed to. So the people people like Eli who live in this bubble, and I think it's very clear that Eli has been this protected little, you know, boy king, even in his own family, uh, just don't understand how the world works. You know, Richard has to tell him, you know, the story you're trying to tell, nobody, you have a vision of the world that doesn't match up with how anybody in the world actually operates. <laughs> Uh, that may be. I, I I don't know, Carrie. I uh, I just feel that you're 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 giving the play a lot more value than I think is actually there on the page. <laughs> well, that might be true in the text. <laughs> uh, I, I I think the whistleblower doesn't have a lot of dramatic weight, and it struck me it is really more a TV drama than a work for a stage. There's no compelling reason for this to be a live play on the stage as opposed to a you know, a TV drama. It lacks the high theatricality and the trench in commentary and the theatrical supplies, which have become signatures of theater wit and particularly of artistic director Jeremy Wexler's work. And that disappointed me. Well, there you go. Theater Wits, The Whistleblower, continues through June 17th. And before we wrap up, we are embarking on a new month. It's June. It's also Chicago Dance Month. Indeed it is, and, and uh, it, this is being billed as Chicago Dance Month, but it's, uh, it actually is a series of programs going on the entire summer long, coordinated and in some cases presented by uh, the organization See Chicago Dance. SeeChicagoDance.com if you want to see their complete program, and I do urge people uh, to, to see what they have to offer. It is right. a summertime of dozens and dozens and dozens of programs, many of them free, some on weekends, some on weekdays, some in the middle of the day, some in the evening. I'm just looking at the, 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 the immediately upcoming schedule. Here's a Sea Chicago Dance event on Saturday, June 10th at the Navy Pier Wave Wall, 3 p.m. to Saturday. It's free. Uh, here is the Joffrey Ballet, the world-famous Joffrey Ballet, performing for free in Millennium Park on June 15th. Uh, it's a Friday at 5.30 p.m. Here's the Ensemble Espanol in Skokie at the North Shore Center for the Performing Arts on June 16, 17, 18. Mm-hmm. Um, all over the place. Here's the right. program. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a Juneteenth celebration with the great tap company Mad Rhythms, the Harold Washington yep. Cultural Center. Uh, there are dance, you know, one of the things that they often tie in with a lot, and we'll be talking about this in, a, in an upcoming in an upcoming segment, uh, but about uh, how Chicago just really blossoms out with outdoor performances. And Chicago Dance Month definitely intersects with a lot of things like night out in the parks from the Park District and other events that are going on. Um, it's, and they're geared for they're, they're geared for families. You can learn a few dance steps. Uh, I think there's uh, in July there's Disfest, which is at the Chicago Cultural Center, which focuses on da- uh, dancers and, and uh, physical performers with disability. So there's just a, an amazing array. And you know, it's not that you need any more of an excuse to get outside <laughs> in the summer in Chicago, but if you want to get out and, and, and move a little and meet new people and learn a few new steps, there, there's absolutely. And, and not all of it is outdoors, but I, I'm focusing on that because so much of it is taking place in the parks or, as you mentioned, it's the Navy Pier Wall. 
there are just endless opportunities to kind of experience yeah. and sample some of what the rich yeah. dance community in Chicago has to offer. Right. Because you and I are not dance critics, and we, <laughs> we only talk about dance if it's within the context of a work of musical theater, we give short shrift to Chicago's wonderful an extensive dance scene and dance community. Uh, and so I do urge people, uh, go to the website, seechicagodance.com, all one word, seechicagodance.com. Look at their full schedules in the city. It's in all neighborhoods of the city. It's in some of suburban venues, some very large venues, some small storefronts. All right. Great. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, Carrie. welcome. I'm Gary Zydek, and you're tuned into the Arts Section. A collection of restored string instruments that were played by Jewish musicians before and during the Holocaust has made its way to the Chicago area. The well-traveled instruments are part of a project called Violins of Hope. Israeli violin maker Amnon Weinstein has spent the last two decades collecting and repairing 70 Holocaust-era stringed instruments from around the world. He's restored the violins to reclaim their lost heritage, giving voice to the victims and providing messages of hope and humanity. The violins are to play on, not to be like a furniture. That's very good for the violin. You can keep them for 500 years, but violin have to speak. And the most important part of the life of a violin is to be played in concert, and then they can tell stories. That was a clip of Weinstein from a 2016 PBS documentary. The Violins of Hope instruments have traveled to cities across the globe where organizations are able to exhibit them and orchestras are encouraged to play them. Thanks to an effort by Jewish Community Centers of Chicago, a.k.a. JCC Chicago, the program has come to Illinois for the summer. About five years ago, before COVID, one of our board members brought the idea to the JCC Chicago. This is Eileen Ullman, Director of Community Engagement for JCC Chicago. Her friend had seen the exhibition in Arizona, and she, she came to us and said, we, we can do this, we should do this. And we were, at that time, we were thinking about how we would celebrate the 10th anniversary of our film festival. We run the Chicago Jewish Film Festival. It was at that time that we thought, well, you know, we'll, we'll bring the violins of hope. Eddie Goodman is the president and CEO of JCC Chicago. She says a lot of planning went into bringing the project to Illinois. We actually reserved violins four years ago, and we determined then that we would go big. So we reserved the full suite of available violins, over 70 instruments, and planned for them to be in Chicago for three months beginning in April. And over the course of our planning, because our community partners have raised their hands so high and have you know, really leaned in to making this an incredible experience of learning and education and community, we've expanded significantly to a six-month tour. And we're covering the entire state. And while Violins of Hope has been around since 2006, and to your point, has been in the United States a number of times, 
There is no community that has gone with the initiative to the scale. And really, with intention, we have reached to schools and libraries, you know, orchestra halls and symphony centers in all kinds of places. But we've really tried to be in what we call far-flung communities. You'll find Violins of Hope Chicago in Kankakee and Peoria in Champaign-Urbana. We're on the south side, the west side, the north shore, the northwest, you name it. And really with intention, trying to reach as many people as we can. We have already seen over 50,000 people in person just over the past six weeks. So we're on a mission to really reach a couple hundred thousand individuals with in-person programming all around these key messages of acceptance and tolerance and kindness and hope, really striving to make the world a better place. Uh, Things are kind of scary these days. And uh, the ability to infuse a community with hopeful messaging and experiences is what we're really leaning into on the Violence of Hope Chicago initiative. Local Violence of Hope programming is being divided into three categories, though there is some overlap. We knew we wanted to do three things. We wanted there to be exhibition of violence, you know, a typical exhibition. Um, We wanted there to be performances because playing on these instruments gives voice to people who no longer have a voice. And then we also knew we wanted educational opportunities. I've been spending the last few weeks talking to a lot of schools, um, a lot of students in schools. When we thought about accessibility to exhibitions, it made sense to us to reach out to libraries because libraries are very accessible. They're very low barrier. How many local partner organizations are going to present Violins of Hope programming? I've never really stopped to count each individual organization. There are over 100 events across the state. If I had to take a guess, I would say a minimum of 60 partner organizations. And that includes schools, libraries, museums, federations. I'm trying to think, you know, synagogues churches, so faith groups. We really, I'm somebody who always thinks the more, the more, so the more we can do, the impact we make. So we really do try to do as much as we can and reach as big an audience as possible. Goodman says the education component is especially important for JCC Chicago. While Illinois was the first state to mandate Holocaust education, that education is not meaningful today. It's not the kind of learning that really is sticking with people. So even while we're in our Chicago public school high schools and, you know, West Side elementary schools, we're having conversations with students who are really uninformed. They don't know about the Holocaust. They don't, many of them have not, are not even familiar with the word. And so if we, if we want to really infuse hope in our future, we're really starting with our young people, require the kind of learning and education that will help them understand what happens when you lead with hate versus kindness and hopefulness. And that's, it's a long game. There's not an immediate, you know, result we're going to see when the violins are packed up in September and move on to their next host location. Uh, But we are really on a mission to make this a significant Chicago happening. And like I said, our partnerships from you know, Cubs Charities in Wrigley Field, to the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, to the Gail Borden Public Library in Elgin. The entire city of Elgin has um, done an incredible job bringing this to their community, which is a 57% Hispanic community, a heavy immigrant population. And they really see the kind of power and the stories and the experiences of this project. So 
Um, with all of the interest, we have just expanded greatly, and our dance card is very full, and we are thrilled about that. Ullman says the violins of hope are an effective educational tool and that they raise bigger questions that go beyond what a student might read in a textbook. If 10 million people died altogether, 6 million Jews, and 4 million other people, um, and uh, when you think about those numbers, those are such large numbers that they're really inconceivable. We cannot, we really, it's hard to fathom. But when you tell the story of one person, now people can relate to it. Right. They can think about what would I have done. You know, we ask students, what would you, what would you take if, if somebody came to your house and said, you have 30 minutes, you can bring 50 kilo, be at the, be at the depot. What would you bring? It really, it's something that, um, because it's so much part of what I'm doing, you know, day in and day out, it's really something that I've been thinking a lot about. What would I take? I'm not a musician, so, you know, clearly it's not my, my instrument, but what would I take? If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with leaders with JCC Chicago about the organization's efforts to bring violins of hope to the Chicago area. The stringed instruments will be spreading their message of hope all over the city and suburbs. Are details known about some of these individual instruments? So we know, for some of the instruments, we know exactly who owned it. For many of them, we do not. And Abnoon um, considers those his treasures. I just spent the weekend with James Grimes, who wrote the book on Violins of Hope. And he spent a lot of time with Amnon in the workshop. And James, you know, James says that, so for Amnon, when he restores these violins, and when, especially when he doesn't know who owned them, for him it's like he's creating a tombstone. It's, it's very poignant when you think about it. But that's how he thinks about it. Um, so every violin has a story. Some of the violins, especially the ones that we don't know their provenance, uh, they've been dedicated to people's memories. Some of the violins bear the name of the person who made them, or it bears the name of, and the story of the person who purchased it. Those stories are shared on our website. When we go out to schools and at exhibitions, we share those stories. Of course, a big part of this project involves musical organizations using the instruments in concert. Later today, the Northbrook Symphony Orchestra will be presenting a concert with the Violins of Hope. The Northbrook Symphony is uh, continuously collaborating with the North Shore Chamber Music Festival. They have connections with the Jewish Community Center in Chicago. And we were introduced the idea as one of the orchestras that will take on the Violins of Hope project and feature the instruments. This is the orchestra's music director, Mina Zikri. Uh, We are getting 14 of them. Uh, About three of them will be on display three to four. The rest, 10 or 11, will be played by orchestra members during the concert, including the soloist, but not for the entire concert, for a part of the concert. And what happens is that we do a little exhibition at the end to feature instruments. There are people who explain about the instruments. And after we're done with the concert, the musicians who played on the instruments will take questions from the audience. 
if people want to know how it felt to play on these instruments. Uh, I have to tell you, I myself have had the privilege of playing on some of these instruments in various occasions with the JCC around Chicago. I played for children, I played for uh, the Northbrook Public Library a couple days ago. I want to say that it was very special, the meaning of playing on one of these instruments. When you play a violin like this, you almost don't think an instrument anymore. The Northbrook Symphony Orchestra will wrap up its current season with this afternoon's Violins of Hope program. There are two parts. One of them I'm not going to tell you because that's uh, only a surprise for those who will come to the concert. Okay. Um, but the Max Bruch Violin Concerto is a very emotional piece. It's the heart of the romanticism. It's very violinistic, very, very, very virtuosic, but at the same time it's great music. So I thought this would be a good fit for the program. The second piece on the program, the bigger piece, is the Dvorak New World Symphony. And the New World Symphony, from the title you could see, it's, a, it's, it's actually called Symphony from the New World. So we're trying, I was trying to say uh, these violins are now in a new world, hopefully, <laughs> uh, that is full of hope and all we can do is hope for a better future. But at the same time, there is one element of this symphony toward the end of it that I will only announce on the day of the concert that if people come, uh, they would understand why I personally picked that uh, symphony specifically to be, to be performed in that program. You can find more info about today's concert at northbrooksymphony.org. The local Violins of Hope programming will continue into September. The Grant Park Orchestra, Chicago Botanic Garden, and Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center are among the organizations presenting events over the next couple of months. Ullman says the hope is these programs promote compassion and humanity. With rising anti-Semitism and, frankly, increased hate, just hate crimes, hate talk. So I hope that people will hear these messages of the stories that the violins tell. I hope it will inspire people to be kinder and more respectful of one another. We're all just human beings. Every human being matters. You can find a full Violins of Hope calendar of events at jccchicago.org. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the arts section every Sunday morning on WDCB, thank you. Make sure to check out the program's website, theartssection.org. There's lots more stuff on the website, including past episodes and individual features that you can listen to again anytime you want, plus pictures and links to go along with all the stories you hear on the show. Check out theartssection.org. Tu demandais hier Mon avis sur le bonheur L'air de rien, voilà que tu t'inquiètes I'm Gary Zydek. It's movie review time on the arts section. The new French-language film, Full Time, illuminates just how thin the line between getting by and poverty can be for some families. The movie follows a chaotic week in the life of a single mother, Julie, played by acclaimed French actor Laurel Calamy. 
Divorced with two young children, Julie tries to maintain a stable household in the suburbs while she works as the head chambermaid at a five-star hotel in Paris. That already challenging existence takes a turn toward full-blown mayhem due to a combination of factors. Julie's bank account is running low because her deadbeat ex-husband hasn't paid child support and won't answer her repeated calls. We also learn Julie is pursuing a new job in marketing, a field she's previously worked in. While we never get the details of what happened and how she ended up as a maid, it's revealed that she has a master's in economics and is desperately trying to get back in her field. Adding to her stress, the kid's nanny, an older neighborhood woman, has grown tired of Julie's long hours and no longer wants the job. And exacerbating the entire situation is a transit strike that's crippled Julie's main form of transportation to and from work. And the cherry on top, Julie is trying to set up her young son's birthday party while everything else is going on. There's a memorable scene of Julie coming home after what was likely a 13-14 hour day. She puts her kids to bed, but before she can go to sleep, she has to unload and set up a trampoline that she's bought for her son. Director Eric Gravel presents the story of the struggling single mom in the form of a thriller. The film moves at a frenetic pace as we watch Julie lift mountains to get to work, then to sneak away for a job interview, and then try to get back home to feed and bathe her children. There's no rest for the weary, and we the viewers don't get a moment to catch our breath either. It's very similar in style to the Safdie brothers' work. Josh and Ben Safdie are the creative team behind breakneck thrillers Good Time and Uncut Gems. Both films relish putting audiences on the edges of their seat from the moment they start. Here the stakes would seem to be lower. There's no crime or vices involved. Julie is literally just trying to survive, and a realistic turn of events has sent her spiraling. Without giving too much away, there's a part later in the movie where it's no longer a given, that Julie is going to pull up from this nosedive, and it becomes clear just how quickly a family can descend into poverty. I think the realities of that story are universal, whether you live in France or the U.S. Viewers who might question the impact of a transit strike on your everyday life should know that protests and strikes are a somewhat common occurrence in France. I've had holidays in France disrupted by rail strikes. Inconvenient for me, sure, but the real impact was on the people who live and work there and depend on the subways, trains, and buses to get around. No judgments from me on the rail workers, it's a complicated situation. With full time, Gravel has crafted a masterful work that slyly grabs your attention and wins your affection for a character who, despite numerous and growing obstacles, keeps moving forward. Calamy is fantastic in the role as she balances multiple balls in the air while standing on a tightrope. She won the Best Actress Award at the 2021 Venice Film Festival for her performance as Julie. I highly recommend Full Time. I give it 3.5 out of 4 stars. It's currently available to rent on all video-on-demand platforms. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Jazz, Chicago history, and dance will come together in a new program that's making its world premiere at the Auditorium Theater this week. The South Chicago Dance Theater will present Memoirs of Jazz in the Alley. We do jazz, modern, contemporary, contemporary ballet. Um, we infuse theater into all of our work, so I would describe us as a traditional repertory dance company. This is Kia S. Smith. She's the director of South Chicago Dance Theater and the choreographer behind Memoirs of Jazz in the Alley. 
The program was inspired by the jazz-flavored community gatherings that took place on the south side of Chicago for around 10 years in the 60s and 70s. The weekly events that featured DJ battles and sometimes live music took place under the title Jazz in the Alley. Smith's dad, saxophonist and educator Jimmy Ellis, was among the first musicians to get involved in the happenings. By the time I asked my dad about this, he was like in his mid-90s. By the time I even asked him about it, I didn't even know it was a thing. I, I read about it. That's how I found out about it. What I read and what he, what I've heard is Jazz in the Alley started with live DJs, but then my dad brought the live music to it one Sunday. And then from there, it just became a part of the culture of Jazz in the Alley that musicians would come and play and people would come to listen. And so it was kind of a cultural gathering of all different kinds of people, different races, different socioeconomic statuses, people coming from different walks of life just to be together. Smith also has a geographic connection to the community where these gatherings took place near 50th and Champlain in Chicago's Bronzeville neighborhood. That's also where he grew up on 49th and Champlain. Just like I really love history, even outside of just not just my family, but in general, I love history. And so I did some more digging and realized that like my great grandmother, when she moved to Chicago during the Great Migration, she lived very close to there, too. So my family has just has a history in that area. So it just struck me me very deeply about wanting to connect with it. The idea of creating a Jazz in the Alley-inspired dance program started to take shape after Smith stumbled upon an online gallery of photos her father took of these weekly gatherings. I discovered this gallery of photos on Google Arts and Culture like four years ago, and it really inspired me because, for one, I, I knew that my dad took took photos, but I didn't know he had taken so many, and he had taken, he's credited with taking most of the pictures in this gallery, and there's just pictures of people all different ages, dancing together, talking together, children playing, um, and just looking at those pictures, I felt inspired to, to want to connect more with the community that existed because it's, you know, it's in, it's where I grew up too. So that was kind of a discovery. And then later on, when I got a grant from Chicago Dancemakers Forum to research an evening length work, I decided to use that as inspiration. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Kia S. Smith, the director of South Chicago Dance Theater about the company's world premiere, Memoirs of Jazz in the Alley. I'm calling it a work of historical fiction because it's rooted in this history of jazz in the alley, but I kind of looked at the photos and found people that stood out to me in the pictures, like who I thought could be characters. So there's a lady in red, and actually the photos are in black and white, so I don't know what color people were wearing, but I assume this lady maybe could have been in red, and she, we follow her from beginning to end, and we see her with her primary love interest, we see her with other people in the alley, and her trajectory is what kind of roots us in something from beginning to end. We also have um, the Sandman, who I think anyone that knows about Jazz in the Alley would know the Sandman. Um, this character was prevalent in the community, and he literally would walk around just picking up garbage, like cleaning it, the community, because he said it was his world. People just knew him as this kind of different, like something about him was just a little bit different. I'll say that, I guess. So his personality was really funky in a good way. So we follow the Sandman from beginning to end, and, and the Sandman's character narrates the show for the audience, not with words, but just kind of like we see the Sandman alone a lot, kind of addressing the audience with movement to comment on something that just happened or to foreshadow something that's going to happen later. And so in a way, we also are kind of rooted in the Sandman story too. There's going to be projections that complement the movement on stage.
Yeah, so we have a projection designer, Rashawn Devante Johnson. The projections are going to be kind of amplifying the emotion that you see in the show and also referencing some of the murals that existed at that time. Around that time, there was a big mural movement in Chicago. So muralists were creating work kind of all over the South Side, but also in Jazz in the Alley, there were some signature murals that existed. And so Devante is not like taking those actual murals, but taking ideas from those to create a backdrop. Music also plays a big role in the program. Smith reached out to Chicago-based saxophonist and band leader Isaiah Collier. We put this show together, I would say, like my research period was a year, kind of like by myself, but then coming together with the collaborators and the dancers, it's been about six months, which is pretty quick. So we didn't have time, although I would have loved it, to have him compose a whole show and for me to have time to choreograph to it. So I ended up choosing most of these songs or standards that he is playing live, but then there's some interludes and other moments with the main characters where he composed something new or where the band is improvising, and you can, you can kind of get a sense of his personal flavor, I think, from those. Smith is hoping this dance concert evokes that sense of community that was so prevalent at those Jazz in the Alley events that took place decades ago. Even though some of the undertones of the story can feel a little bit harsh or maybe even sad, overall I want it to be a joyous and fun show to watch. I would also say I I want them to feel just like connected to a feeling of coming together and being with other people. I think that watching the show, it's easy to connect to these, these characters, these main characters that we see, and so I want people to feel like, I don't know, a greater understanding of one another just from watching it. That's Kia S. Smith. She's the choreographer behind South Chicago Dance Theater's new program, Memoirs of Jazz in the Alley. The world premiere will take place Saturday, June 10th at the Auditorium Theater. Go to auditoriumtheater.org for more info. Once you get to know Chicago, you're sure to come back again to view the fastness of Lake Michigan. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek, and I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Stay cool. Thanks for listening. University Cottage Grove South Park Chicago's Loop Bound for Chicago's Roosevelt Harrison Jackson Monroe Washington Chicago, Chicago.
Gaga.